All right, let's go Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms and the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Um, we legitimately want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by the scriptures, to be shaped by knowing Jesus. And so um, if the, the Bible is what he uses to change your heart in those ways, like it's just kind of common sense to be looking for creative ways to be getting people to read it. And so if you don't have a copy of God's Word, take that one. I'll call it the best part of my day. Um, Luke chapter 18. So we're getting pretty deep now into our effort to walk through uh, a better understanding of what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, 10-week effort on our part. Uh, this is week 7 for us, and so we're getting pretty close now. Uh, if you haven't been here, though, Paul lists off nine things in Galatians chapter 5 that are to be markers or character traits uh, for God's people, right? Uh, character traits for God's people. And uh, each, of, each week, um, we've, we've kind of been letting all the good church kids in the room kind of flex their good church kids' muscles and rattle them off, all right? And so this is your chance to shine. I know some people who have been practicing, all right? So let's do them with us. All right, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Y'all are getting better at this, all right? One more time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're going to get like a punch card. And then if anybody who can, like, re recite them, like, five weeks in a row, we'll play your favorite song next week, all right? <laughs> Excuse me. All right, so, no, Paul lists off those nine things uh, as qualities that ought to be present and growing in the life of God's people, in the character of God's people. And so we spent our first week kind of looking at all nine of them as this collective whole, meaning it's not something we get to pick and choose. We don't get to, you know, dabble in a little bit of gentleness and a little bit of kindness, but leave the self-control behind. It's something that uh, they're all things that we should be growing in all of the time. Um, I'm going to cough a lot today. I'm sorry. <coughs> Please excuse me in advance for all the times that that's going to happen. All right. So, but in each successive week, in each successive week, we've begun to take a deeper look at each of the fruit individually, right? Each of the fruit individually, meaning um, we, we gave, and we gave ourselves four kind of simple rules to kind of direct our pathway, uh, make sure we're staying in a good place as we're uh, seeing these things and making sense of these things. Four rules. Uh, the first one is simple, that each of the fruit are really just the fleshing out of God's good character in us. That, that the things that he calls us to, God, our God doesn't do arbitrary. He doesn't come up with arbitrary commands. Uh, the things he calls us to are what he already is and who he's calling us to be. And so he invites us to be where he is. And so uh, that means that the call to, to grow in these fruit are really less about becoming more likable or a better person as you know some kind of standard, but it, it's really about becoming more like God. And I don't, I don't know if you know this, by looking at me, I don't have what it takes to become like God. <laughs> I, I don't know if you looked in the mirror this morning. I looked in the mirror this morning. I fall a little short. I fall desperately short, actually. And so this is why we need rule number two, the fruit belong to the Spirit, not me. They don't originate out of me, but it's something that the Spirit is pleased to produce in me. 
They have never been and they will never be something that I can produce. They are something that the Spirit produces and is happy to produce in me as I walk in step with him. Both my past failure and, and all of my future failures, they were accounted for. Planned for and designed to be made much of. That leads us to rule number three, right? It, we, we don't just sit back and do nothing. We've been called to grow in these fruit by practicing these fruit. We cultivate, right? And I'm going to do a, my level best to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, we're told. And so, to use Paul's words from Galatians 5. And so, we've got work to do as the Spirit grows these things in us. But he's good, and I don't know, I think we can trust him to get us there, right? And then finally, we got rule number four. The fruit, the fruit will always have a community dynamic to them. There's always going to be some, some benefit to those outside, both inside the church and outside the church. They will benefit from the fruit growing in me. And so if we see them correctly, we're going to see that too. So you ready to jump into it today? What's our, what's our next fruit on the docket? Goodness. Yeah. Somebody's got it. All right. So what is goodness? How should we define it? Well, our culture's understanding of goodness is complicated, I think. In many ways, uh, we think of it as something that is uncorrupted. Does that make sense? It's something that's uncorrupted, synonymous with kind of innocence. Um, we often see goodness as a default base level character trait that, that until either our innocence is taken from us by somebody else acting upon us, or we actively refuse to live consistently with that innocence, and then our default goodness becomes corrupted. Right? That's tend to, that tends to be how we define goodness. Case in point, in Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, I did a lot of Googling this week, all right, they give two use-it-in-a-sentence kind of examples for goodness. The first one, a person of such unaffected goodness that his friends were inspired to lead better lives. There's your uncorrupted side of it, right? The dude's innocence was seen as attractive, and it incited a return to innocence in those around him. They saw it and went, huh, I like that. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up these things so I can return to this default state of goodness. The second use it in a sentence example they give is, even if you don't agree, at least have the goodness to be polite. And there's your default setting, right? It's assumed that we all have and understand what goodness is and should call upon it in certain moments. And the people who refuse to restrain themselves and show that culturally assumed understanding of goodness in those important moments, those are the bad guys in the story, right? They lack a basic decency and a decorum that is to you know, be expected among civilized peoples. What's really interesting to me, and I just, the longer you watch culture, the more you'll see these disconnects. What's really interesting to me is that in another, and I would argue intellectually inconsistent way, our culture also sees goodness as something that evolves over time. Do you notice this about our culture? That the goalposts move, meaning goodness will both let go of and pick up different mores with each successive generation. And like the longer you've been alive, the more you can already believe this to be true, right? Um, every single generation, I mean every single generation thinks of their own natural leanings as the proper default where those coming before them weren't enlightened enough and everybody coming after them is a moron who can't hold on to it. Am I wrong? 
Yeah, all the, all the young people are like, nah. All the old people are like, yeah. <laughs> and that's just the generational change. When you add in the dynamics of the region of the country, political ideology, socioeconomic status, the list goes on and on and on, just kind of fractals out from there. So the obvious question, the obvious question that has to be asked, I think, is who, who gets to define what goodness is on its most basic level? Like, do we need some kind of special policy-making committee? Get a bunch of people in a room and redraft the list and put it up for a vote every November? Do those with influence to maintain, like corporations and politicians, do they have a vested interest in steering the discussion one direction or another? Is it possible that there is a standard for goodness that's deeper and far more eternal than whatever group pulling the strings wants it to be? This is where we get to look at the text, because Jesus is going to wade right into this very question. This very question. So, so what's our context for the morning? What, what are we, what's going on in Luke 18? Well, all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all right, they all tell this story. Uh, toward the back end of Jesus' three-year public ministry, uh, he begins heading towards Jerusalem with a clear purpose. He's heading towards the cross. All right? In fact, in Luke's account, uh, at some, at, at earlier before this, he says that he set his face like flint to head to the cross. Right, And so he's physically moving that direction. He's heading to the city of Jerusalem, and he's consistently reminding his disciples that he must suffer and die and be raised again, and his teaching starts to get a whole lot more abrasive, right? It's almost like he's picking a fight with the religious authorities so they'll want to kill him. I don't know. Crazy idea. And in the middle in the middle of this decisive movement towards the cross, and in the middle of the circus of followers that are surrounding him, all wanting a, a piece of this miracle-working rabbi, we're told that Jesus has an encounter with someone that Luke calls a rich young ruler. A rich young ruler. Matthew and Mark, they call him by a different name, a rich young man. Right? But we have a good reason to believe that this guy was likely a Pharisee because of some of the things that are going to come out of his mouth in the story. All right? So look at verse 18 with me. Look at verse 18 with me. Chapter 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, let's call time out there. All right, so picture the scene with me, all right? Everybody's trying to steal a moment with Jesus. Everybody's pulling at him. Can you, can you heal my disease? Can you explain to me such and such? Hey, Jesus, why don't you and your disciples do so and so? Everybody wants a little piece of Jesus. And then out of nowhere, we get this moment. A young man who apparently is pretty well off financially, he wants Jesus to tell him exactly what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And all kinds of ink has been spilled trying to figure out and analyze this young man's motive. We're not told what his motive is, but a lot of people got some ideas about his motive. All right? You read, start reading through commentaries on this text, you're going to find a thousand options for, well, I think he was thinking this, and I think he was thinking that. A lot of ink has been spilled trying to figure out and analyze this young man's motive. And some, some want to argue that this question is a product of laziness. Product of laziness. Jesus, just give me the shortest route that I need to take in order for God to finally be happy with me. Give me the point A to point B. I don't want to worry about the stuff that God's not worried about, so give me the actual list and I'll do that, right? 
And to be honest, if, if that assessment is true, if that really is his motive, then I see a whole bunch of myself in that question. You any better than me? There are times in my heart and life that I really would prefer a least common denominator kind of faith. I'm there. Listen, I get it, Jesus. What you say is important. I, I, I'm on board with that, but could you just like, you know, hurry up and let me know what the shortest pathway there happens to be? I got stuff to do. I'll go ahead and knock it out before bedtime. If the rich young ruler's question is birthed out of laziness, I don't just understand it. I empathize with it deeply. Some, though, they argue a different motive. Not everybody goes the lazy route. Some argue a different motive. They, they try to theorize that the rich young ruler has spent his entire life chasing after all these things he's been told will finally make God happy. And he looks at the accumulation of it all and goes, I don't think it's moved the needle. And he's exhausted. He's been left feeling like all of his religious effort has been a giant waste of time. And to be honest, if that assessment of truth, that really is his motive, <laughs> then I see a whole bunch of myself in that question too. Right? There are times in my heart and life that I really do wonder if it's all worth it. You doing any better than me? I look at the sum total of my efforts towards righteousness and it's, it's pretty obvious how desperately I fall short of what God is tells me is going to make him happy. And I begin to wonder why I should bother pursuing righteousness at all. If the rich young ruler's question is birthed out of exhaustion, I don't just understand it, I empathize with that too. We're not told exactly what his motive is. We're just left to wonder and ponder and postulate, right? But we are told how Jesus answers his question. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this, this young man, he comes to Jesus with a question, whether his motive is lazy or exhausted, we are told that he couches his question to Jesus by giving Jesus a couple of honorific titles. He calls him good teacher. Good teacher. And unlike all of our previous weeks in the series, we got our keyword in the very first two verses. You're welcome. Like it's normally like the last verse we look at, right? Don't say I ain't never give you nothing. That's a triple negative, by the way. All right. So the rich young ruler, he calls Jesus good teacher. And how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus immediately challenges his understanding of goodness. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And this is the first of a couple of reasons why we think that this kid might have been a Pharisee. Um, Jesus knows exactly what it means to call someone good. And he knows that this young man knows exactly what it means to call someone good. You can't just throw that title around all willy-nilly. That title belongs to God alone. So if you want to call me good, you better also be ready to call me God. That's Jesus' point. In love for this young man, Jesus will not leave his question unchallenged. Wait a minute. Hang on a second. It, like, aren't we talking about the spiritual fruit of goodness this week? And aren't we supposed to like, be doing these things and growing in these things? Did Jesus just make the claim that only God can be good? Yep. 
That's going to cause a problem for us later, won't it? The answer is yes. But it would seem, it would seem that Jesus has a higher standard for his definition of goodness than we all naturally do. Jesus comes to the table with a definition of goodness that far outpaces anything that we'll ever dream up. While we all play around with cute little ideas about a, an evolving innocence trying to keep pace with the ever-changing values of our sin-filled culture, Jesus, on the other hand, looks a Pharisee in the eye and goes, listen, I know what true goodness is, and you know what true goodness is. That title can only ever belong to one, God. And so maybe, maybe our definition of goodness is tragically too small. Perhaps any definition of goodness that tries to use ourselves as some kind of standard, even the uncorrupted self. Perhaps it's all a vain effort to try and orient goodness around the wrong center of mass. We can keep going because Jesus certainly does. keeps applying the pressure on into verse 20. You know the commandments? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. All right, so Jesus tells him, you already know the law. You already know the law, and he starts rattling off commandments. You know, the commandments, all right? Jesus lists five of them if you're keeping score. In order of appearance, we've got the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth. So Jesus recites half of the Decalogue, half of the Ten Commandments, back to this young man. The law that God gave to his people after he rescued them out of captivity in Egypt. The law that was intended to show Israel how they were to both relate to and represent God as his chosen people. The rich young ruler wants a to-do list. He wants to know exactly what he's got to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus takes him back to the very things that the Father commanded 1,500 years before this moment when he created a people for himself and told them what to do. You want a to-do list? Here's your to-do list. God didn't change his mind. He didn't evolve over time. He didn't shift his values to try to stay current and aligned with the more prevailing mores of the surrounding culture. No, God said what he wanted. He doesn't need to repeat himself. He wrote it in tablets of stone. The things that, require, that were required for Israel to draw near to the infinitely holy God back in Exodus 20 are the exact same things that are still required to draw near to the infinitely holy God today if you want it in to-do list form. Period. Jesus is like, what are you asking me for? You know the commandments. And how does the rich young ruler respond to this half recitation of the law? We're told in verse 21. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. And here is reason number two why we think that this young man was likely a Pharisee. It's also another point where those assuming his motive will read his response very, very differently. Um, if, if his motive is laziness, then all these I have kept, that is a bald-faced lie trying to impress a religious expert standing in front of him. It's an attempt to tell Jesus what he thinks Jesus wants to hear so that Jesus will give him another option. But if, 
if the rich young ruler's motive is exhaustion, then all these I have kept is a desperate confession that those things didn't get him where get him anywhere despite his best effort. I've done all that. I've done all that, and I'm still here. What more do I have to do? And so the answer to the motive question, it really comes down to the answer of a different question. Do you, do you think the rich young ruler is a liar? And secondly, do you think Jesus knows the answer to that first question? But there's actually a third question we can ask. What if motive doesn't actually matter? Because look at how Jesus responds to his answer in verse 22. When he heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So Jesus doesn't challenge this man's claim to have kept half the law. Now, in light of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching that the law is bigger and more perfect than we naturally think, in light of Paul's teaching that tells us that the law was specifically given in order to show us that we are insufficient to fulfill the law, and even in light of even in light of our own experiences, man, of failing desperately short of God's glory, right? Who's with me on that? Like, we can point to all kinds of things here. Because of those things, every single biblically literate person in this room right now knows that this man hasn't kept those five commandments perfectly from his youth. No one in this room thinks that that man has kept those five commandments or any one of those commandments since that morning. Not even close. But instead of calling that out, I promise you, Jesus sees it. But instead of calling that out, Jesus instead lets that slide for a moment. And he goes in a different direction. Instead of quoting the other five commandments he didn't quote the first time, Jesus tells him, yeah, but you still lack one thing. See, all that you have, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Yeah, Jesus, stick it to the rich guy. Make him redistribute that wealth. It's an interesting thing that Jesus tells this guy to do. Mostly because we know of several other quote-unquote rich guys that are actively following him when these words come out of his mouth. And this is the only one he ever told to do that. Um, guys like Matthew, the tax collector, following him around. It's a pretty safe bet that Matthew made his money through even less scrupulous means than this rich young ruler did. We can almost guarantee it. Throws Jesus a party at his house. Matthew's never told to give everything away before he can follow Jesus. He's just told to follow Jesus. So, so why is this guy given a condition that nobody else gets? Well, I think our biggest clue lies in the five commandments that Jesus didn't recite. Missing from Jesus' half recitation were the first four commandments and then number 10. The first four commandments and number 10. The first four commandments are all in a vertical direction, meaning they, they deal with our relationship with God. The last six are more horizontal. They deal with our relationship with others. And so the first four, no other gods before me, no graven images, don't use my name incorrectly, honor the Sabbath, right? The 10th commandment, 
Those of you who know what it is, what is it? Don't covet, right? The rich young ruler could point to a whole lot of things going on in the spiritual category of his life that he was doing pretty darn well in. Whole bunch of things. I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done this. It's probably why we think he was a Pharisee. I mean, I've ne- I never murdered nobody. That's not in my, that's not in my back pocket. And his business dealings, they were, they were all, I guess, relatively honest, pretty honest. And he was careful to make sure his eye never wandered away from his wife. And, you know, he was sure to call his mommy every Sunday afternoon. Compared to ever, all the bozos hanging around him, he was the good kid. Right? All these yo-yos over here making a mess of things. Now, I'm the good kid. Jesus saw another layer down. Jesus saw another layer down. Saw what either laziness or exhaustion prevented even this young man from seeing. And in a blink and you'll miss it moment, Jesus gives the rich young ruler a single do this and live command that cuts to the very heart of why he's standing there. Jesus shines a light on the truth that if this man is forced to choose between his great possessions and a reconciled relationship with God, he doesn't love God as much as he thinks he does. Jesus slices with surgical precision, and the heart of the problem is laid bare for everyone to see it. And so we're told that the rich young ruler slinks away in sadness Quote, because he was extremely rich. Jesus pointed to what this young man couldn't give up and said, no, nah, I want that too. You can't walk away loving that thing more than me. I want that. And he walked away. To which Jesus then turns around and says to the crowd watching all of this in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Verse 29, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom, uh, sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many more times, or excuse me, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. All right, so we've got an oft-quoted, but I think also oft-misunderstood saying of Jesus here. Now, it shouldn't be oft-misunderstood. But people do dumb stuff with the Bible sometimes to try to justify other dumb stuff. I don't know if you've come across that in our world. Never? No? Me? I'm the only one? Okay. So, for instance, some who don't like the idea that Jesus would teach that, you know, wealth might be a giant burden to spiritual health, you know, also known as people pushing the prosperity gospel, they've tried to argue in the past that, well, you know, you know the, the eye of the needle was really the name of a gate in the inner wall of Jerusalem. And so what you had to do, camels couldn't walk through there, and they had to unload the camel, and the camel had to get down on its knees and just kind of shimmy through the hole, and then you had to repack the camel so they could carry on through. Maybe dumb wasn't a strong enough word. <laughs> And, and they would point to that text, and they, they would point to that 
kind of explanation and go, well, you know, really, it was, the, it was the wealthy merchants who had the wherewithal to, you know, wait for the long line of camels. And, and so really, it was a blessing. It was a sign of a blessing. Appropriate response. <laughs> Three reasons why that theory is absolute garbage. One, we have zero historical or archaeological evidence that any gate ever existed by that name. Like, like they build memorials when you have one tiny little half shred of evidence in Israel for something. This one's got zero. <laughs> it takes a lot of work to have zero evidence. Two, second reason why the theory is garbage is that all three accounts of this story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all use slightly different Greek words to describe camels and needles. Right? That's not a problem if you're talking about generic camels and needles. You just use whatever word you want to use for a needle. It is a problem if you're talking about the formal name of something. You don't get to mess around with the word for a needle if it's not the actual name of the gate. Right? But the third and most obvious reason that the theory is garbage is that in the very next verse, the very next verse, those listening to Jesus immediately assume that Jesus is saying that it's impossible. Kind of like, I don't know, literally shoving a candle through a needle's eye. The question that the audience asked is, well, then who can be saved? If, that's what, if it's that hard, who's got any chance at all? They understand the dilemma. They understand that just like the rich young ruler, they don't have what it takes to inherit eternal life either. To which Jesus does not reply, oh, no, 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 I think you misheard me. He doesn't, he doesn't go, I, I think you might have taken what I said a little farther than I intended. Allow me to rephrase that, please. No, he says, you're right, it is impossible. It is impossible. But what is impossible for you is not impossible for God. What is impossible for sinful men is not impossible for the one who actually deserves the title of good. And so listen, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, what must I do, man? What must I do? I mean, I mean, I can point to this thing and I can point to that good thing. They're all good things. But tell me, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and maybe that question is birthed for you out of a least common denominator attempt to find the easiest route possible. Let's hurry up and get this thing done. Or maybe, maybe that question is birthed for you out of a desperate, desperate, exhausted last hope to find something, just anything that'll finally fix the problem. Finally find something that works. Try all these other options and you, know, you feel like you're drowning in the futility of it all. Hear me clearly. It doesn't matter what your motive is. That's not the question to answer. The question to answer is what will you do with the otherworldly goodness of the God-man named Jesus? What will you do with the otherworldly goodness of the God-man named Jesus? There is only one who deserves the title of good, but are you ready to call him God? Are you ready to call him God? What will you do when the one who is actually worthy of you sacrificing every other thing for says, no, I want that so you can follow me? Is he worthy in that moment? Can he be trusted in that moment? Do you actually believe that he is good. 
If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, listen, we, we can do something about that. You can meet Jesus today. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated from God relationally because of our sin and that we are owed the right and just punishment for that sin, God's holy wrath. That is what the to-do list and failing desperately at the to-do list earns you. God's holy wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that God makes us alive through Christ by his grace. How does he do that? The Father sent the Son, Jesus. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He actually walked in perfect goodness. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute and it is because of his perfect goodness that his death is able to make full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient goodness. Now as the king who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you in a moment where we're going to do all the things that we do at the end of our service. I, I, we can talk about it. I'd love to be there. Let's game this out. What if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How, how, how do we respond? How do we how do we possibly go on to pursuing growth in the spiritual fruit of goodness after a text like this? Right? Didn't you just say it was impossible? This is why we need our four rules. We spent all of our time this morning seeing the fruit of goodness. It can never originate in us. It, we've never been asked to have it originate in us. It's God's character. That he is pleased to produce in us as we walk in step with him. Even Pharisees who can stand up and publicly claim that they have fulfilled half the law, they still walk away devastated when the other half is revealed. And so I can stand up this morning and, and like, like I, I, I don't have what it takes to fulfill the other half of the law. I don't have what it takes to fulfill the first half either. There is one who is perfectly good. He specifically came to be good on our behalf. And furthermore, he gave us the spirit specifically to carry us along and produce his goodness in us. And so day after day after day, as I walk in step with the spirit, he creates in me a functional goodness that matches a little more closely to my already declared goodness. But then we get rule three, right? We've been called to cultivate, so until he gets us there, our job is to practice goodness. And so what does that look like? Well, in Galatians 6, shortly after the fruit of the Spirit text, at the back end of Galatians 5, and so in the next couple of paragraphs in chapter 6, uh, Paul keeps his logic train going, and he tells uh, the Galatians to not grow weary in doing good. And his point his point is that we are to act in a way towards others how the Spirit is already acting towards us. We're gentle. 
to flesh out some of the things he mentions in Galatians 6. We're gentle. We, we bear one another's burdens. We're able to be, we're to be open-handed and humble. We're to be diligently working towards holy and eternal ends. Not because those things earn us or maintain our audience with the one who is perfectly good, but because the perfectly good one was pleased to make himself known to us and to call us his own and to slowly and surely make us more and more like the image of himself. See, the attempt to define goodness as some kind of default state of innocence, that's actually a really good definition. The problem is, is we need to back our innocence up to something pre-Genesis 3. We need a sinlessness that we don't have. And so we point to the only one who is uncorrupted by that fall. What about rule 4, though? What about rule 4, like the community dynamic? Well, the same way that perfect goodness was you know, put on flesh and came near to us, I think our calling is to take the goodness of Jesus is producing in us to others, right? And when we see that, and when others see that alien goodness being produced in you, it, I think it's going to be a gigantic opportunity to tell them about Jesus because it's going to confuse the heck out of them. Get ready for it. So how do we respond to all this? Like, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, I think our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in this text. And, and this week, man, I, th- I think he's showing us that he is the standard that all things are to be judged by, good and not good, right? And the moment we start to try to you know, kind of mess with those definitions, pick at those definitions and redefine those things, tinker a little bit here, tinker a little bit there, based on our own sensibilities, it's when we make a giant mess of that, right? It's been the case since the serpent started whispering to Eve's ear in the garden. Well, let's redefine goodness a little bit. History old problem. But in his goodness, Jesus came. He did what we cannot do. And he calls us to himself in the very middle of our weakness. And so I think our response this morning needs to probably take the shape of remembrance and celebration. Celebrating that he is our perfect standard and our perfect advocate and our perfect guide and our perfect finish line. It just so happens that we've got a specific picture he left for us to do that remembering with. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll use our time of singing to come forward and grab the elements. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus here, this table is for you. If, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we love you. I'm glad that you're here. Keep pressing in. Ask all kinds of awesome questions, even the ones you think are dumb. Those are good things. This, this, this isn't for you. It's a picture for those who follow Jesus. And so we're going to have people come forward down this aisle and back up that one. Uh, we'll go ahead and get our servers up here. Um, And then after you get your elements, return to your seat, and we'll take them together as a church family. But let's pray and do that. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for for sending your son to be the perfectly good one. I know my heart. I know my history. I know the things that I'm inclined to do tomorrow. I fall desperately short of goodness. If all I was ever left with was the to-do list, I'd be in just as much trouble as the rich young ruler. 
But God, you are good and you are mighty to save. And you gave us the law, not because we could fulfill it, but to show us how desperately we needed you to fulfill it for us. And so thank you for sending your son. Thank you for him coming to be the savior that we desperately needed. As we take these elements here in a moment, would you use them as a picture, as an illustration of what the price of our lack of goodness costs? God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call men and women into your kingdom today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.